Over recent weeks, friends, we have been on a journey. We have been looking into the book of the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, under the general title, Extracts from Acts. We've been looking at significant moments and events in the life of the early Christian church. I just remind you, in terms of this book of the Acts, I'm going back to chapter 1 and verse 1. The former treatise of I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." Just a note there that Luke is the author of this second part of a two-volume work, and that is, of course, Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. The last time we considered this book, we were in Acts chapter 10 and a little into Acts chapter 11, and that was the vision of Peter and also Cornelius and how the two met in God's providential leading and how Peter and those early Christians came to that point of acceptance that Gentiles were also to be welcomed into the fellowship of the New Testament church, that the church comprises of both Jew and Gentile. So this morning we're thinking of the victory of the gospel, and we are beginning at verse 1 of chapter 12. We have the context there. We read of King Herod. Uh, this king is Herod the Gripper I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great. And we read there of three characters in those opening verses, of King Herod, of James, and of Peter. We've already referred to King Herod. Verse 2, Herod, he killed James, the brother of John with the sword. This happened approximately 10 years after the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read here of a James, we're told that he was the brother of John. So remember when Christ called his first disciples, the first four were fishermen, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And it is that James. And we read in Matthew chapter 20, don't turn to this, I'll read it for you, that James and John's mother was asking the Lord to give her two sons a special place in the glory, as it were, to give them promotion over and above the other ten. And Jesus said then to James and to the others, but especially now to James, you shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And indeed, this apostle did drink of that same cup because he laid down his life for Christ's sake. We also read of Peter. We are very well acquainted with this man now. He's a leading character uh, in the narrative thus far in the book of Acts. Peter the fisherman and Peter the apostle. And Peter was apprehended. He was put into prison. Why? Not because he was a wrongdoer or a criminal or a bad man. In fact, he was a good man. But he was put into prison for righteousness' sake. 
because he was a faithful disciple of his Savior, uh, because he was a faithful preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the only reason that James was killed and that Peter was imprisoned. And so we find here in this chapter there is a great conflict between two massive and mighty powers, between the powers and the forces of evil, the prince of the power of the air, Satan, and all of his agents, and the almighty and the eternal power of God, the living God, Jehovah. And that conflict in this chapter seems to reach a climax between those two forces. As you open and read the first verses, you kind of think to yourself, well, who's going to win here in this clash of these titans? We notice there are different strategies that King Herod plans and schemes, and the Christians give themselves to prayer. So we read there at verse Peter therefore was kept in prison but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him we are told elsewhere that our weapons are not carnal and so these believers were using their chief resource which is prayer to address God and to set their prayers before God. And it's, it's strong when it says, but prayer was made without ceasing. Literally, this means that they were in an agony of prayer. They were praying 24-7, as we would say these days. They were praying earnestly. They were praying as if they meant what they were praying. And yet, there is a hint that within their hearts they still held on to a little unbelief because James had recently died. He'd been killed under Herod and now Peter was in prison and in effect was in a maximum security prison, the Tower of Antonia in the northwest area of the temple in Jerusalem. And so it was most unlikely, it looked quite impossible that the Apostle Peter would be delivered out of prison, humanly speaking, that is. So we've already discovered, or been reminded, I'm sure, that one of the running themes in the book of the Acts is prayer. And I just take you back to chapter 1 and verse 14, or just follow me as I read these texts Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is immediately following Christ's ascension. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. I move now to chapter 2 and verse 42. And this is on the day of Pentecost, following the Apostle Peter's tremendous sermon. And they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. And then down to chapter 10, at verse 9. And this is a reference to Peter, 
And the story of Peter and Cornelius, we read at verse 9, on the morrow as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, we find that Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. So clearly for these New Testament believers, prayer was a regular occurrence on their daily agenda, as it were. And this morning, I want to encourage each one of us, and indeed everyone in this fellowship, to give themselves to prayer, to, as it were, schedule in to your daily appointments and your daily routine a good time of prayer. Because it is so valuable, it is so key, it is so necessary. And there is so much for us to pray for, for our church, for our city, for our country, for the world, for the advance of the kingdom of Christ, for friends and family and neighbours and work colleagues and so much more besides. So following on from the early Christians, they gave themselves to prayer without ceasing. Of course, our dear Saviour was a man of prayer. Again and again in the Gospels, we read of him going aside for a little while, going up a mountain in other places, and praying. We know that he taught his disciples how to pray. We call it these days the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Prayer is one of the means of grace. One of the chief means of grace. And prayer is surely one of our greatest resources as the Lord's people. In all our humanity and our weaknesses and our imperfections and our limitations. But we are called to pray. To speak to God in heaven. And to pray earnestly and to pray with faith. So there's my first point. A spiritual discipline. But my second point is a supernatural deliverance. We've just a moment or two ago read the narrative in Acts chapter 12. We've read about Peter. He's been placed in this tower of Antonia. He is sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And the other keepers before the door kept the prison. These soldiers were in squads of four. And they were no doubt on some kind of arrangement where they came and went as it were. But always there were four that were keeping Peter in custody, in captivity. And then we read of an angel of the Lord appearing and a light shining and disturbing Peter out of his sleep. And giving Peter certain instructions. And Peter just went out and followed. He was probably half asleep at this time and hardly knew what was happening. And they went past the other soldiers and past the various doors of the prison. And they came in verse 10 to the iron gate that leads unto the city. And the gate opened of its own accord. And Peter passed through with the angel of the Lord. And the angel went his way. And verse 11. There's almost humor uh, at points in this narrative. We read at verse 11. Peter was come to himself. In other words, he'd wakened up. He'd perhaps washed his face or something like that. And now he was, he was awake for a new day. He came to himself. He says, I know of a surety, I'm confident. The Lord has sent his angel 
The Lord has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he reflected upon this happening to him, and when he considered these things, then he decided to visit a certain house in the city that was obviously well known to him and to the early Christians. But I'm rushing ahead of myself because I want to pause and just mention about this appearance of the angel of the Lord. Not too many of us these days, I suspect, see an angel. But the angels are still present, albeit out of our sight. The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, verse 7, The angel of the Lord camps around them that fear him and delivers them. So the angels have a particular work to do on behalf of the saints of God. They are, are they not all ministering spirits sent for to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So maybe that's a comfort to us this morning that we do receive the ministry of Christ through the Holy Spirit of God, but we are also recipients of the ministry and the help and on occasion of the intervention and even deliverance of the angels. Verse 14, when Peter arrived at this home, uh, the home is of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This is speculation because we do not finally know. It could be the home of the Last Supper meal. It could be where the disciples met back in there at Acts chapter 1 for that prayer meeting, but we're speculating. But there was certainly a home in that city where the believers often gathered themselves together to pray. And the home was of one Mary, the mother of John. Peter knocked at the gate. A damsel came to open it and to inquire. And when she knew it was Peter's voice, she just fled. <laughs> she went away back to the others. And she told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, noticed interesting their response here to this glad news. Remember, they'd probably been on their knees or were on their knees praying at the moment Rhoda came into the room. And she brings them good news. She brings them news that their prayer has been marvelously answered. They said unto her, you are mad. Or colloquially, it means you're crazy woman. And then they said to her, it's his angel. No, it's not Peter. It must be his angel. Because Peter is secure in that maximum security jail. So when we read at verse 5, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church of God unto him. We commend the Lord's people for earnestly giving themselves to prayer on behalf of Peter, but we suspect that deep within their hearts there was still a measure of unbelief. However, the Lord via the angel had wonderfully delivered his apostle. We also notice in this narrative doors. There are several doors, are there not? There are doors of the prison and the gate of the prison. And there's a door of the house 
And some of these doors are locked and barred. And some of these doors open. And so it is the Lord who opens doors. And it is the Lord who quite often shuts doors. So when we are praying for ourselves as to how God may use us in his service and in the work of the gospel, when we are praying as a church for some matter, i.e. a new pastor, when we are praying for other concerns, sometimes the the Lord graciously and marvelously and occasionally miraculously opens a door. And we are just called to walk ahead. On other occasions, we find that the door is locked and barred. That the door is shut and we cannot open it. Sometimes foolishly, we attempt to open it. Because we think we know best. And so we push on that door. And we push a little stronger on that door. And yet it remains firmly shut. Because only God will open that door for us. So therefore, we're thinking this morning of a mighty deliverance. I read Psalm 34 because that was about another mighty deliverance on behalf of David, the king, and how David had had experienced that great deliverance and how he prayed and acknowledged that on many occasions the Lord's people also experience some deliverance, some great deliverance. A supernatural deliverance. Christian friend, can you speak personally of any deliverance, of a great deliverance, perhaps a deliverance from serious illness or deliverance from a potentially dangerous situation? Can you speak of this out of your experience? Well, if you are a believer, you can certainly testify of one deliverance, and that is God's deliverance of you out of sin and guilt and unbelief. That deliverance that was worked by Christ, by his work upon Calvary's cross, when he was your representative, and when he laid down his life for you and for me, And for all of his elect people. And through that finished work. The work of redemption. Then you and I Christian friend. Experienced a mighty deliverance. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose went forth. And followed thee. Tremendous words of Charles Wesley. And how many Christian people can echo those words when we speak of a supernatural deliverance. But thirdly and lastly, we read here of a sudden death. Verse 20. Herod was displeased with these people in Tyre and Sidon. And they came to some kind of mutual arrangement. Verse 21. Upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal clothing, sat upon his throne, and he made a speech unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. A sudden death, because Herod exalted self. 
he made himself a god. He appreciated, he enjoyed the, the praise and the applause, as it were, of the people when they were shouting of him. It is the voice of a god, not of a man. And we see his very soon demise, because it was only after a very brief interval that the angel smote him. And he died a most miserable death. Obviously, this was God's judgment, very sudden judgment upon this man, King Herod. We do know what he died from. There is speculation it could have been appendicitis and various other things, but no matter. God acted in judgment upon him. And so, as we think of our own lives in this world, life, as the psalmist writes, is like a tale as told. We are like grass which flourishes in the morning, and by the end of the day it's been cut down and it's gone. This place knows it no more. And so, we need to all be ready, because we stand before death and the judgment And death sometimes can come suddenly, sometimes it can come gradually, sometimes it is well expected and well trailed, but we never know. And that's why it's important that on another Lord's Day, in this pulpit and in many other places, in this land and around the world, that brethren preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ is the answer to these eternal realities of death and hell and heaven and eternity. And so in our chapter before us, we have seen here the value of a spiritual discipline prayer. We've read of a great spiritual deliverance when the Apostle Peter was rescued from sure and certain captivity and perhaps even worse if he had continued to languish in that maximum security jail. And we've also read and seen of an example of a sudden death. The victory of the gospel is my title. The victory of the gospel because at the end of this account, we see that there was a victory of the gospel. We read at verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied and in other places we read that the word of God prevailed and the Lord God blessed his people in those days and so that contest that clash between those titans the evil forces and Satan and all of his cohorts all of his schemes and his plans all of his lies we see how they were defeated by the almighty power of God, the victory of the gospel. And it will always be so. At the end, it will always be so. Because God is working out his eternal purposes. And through those purposes, he is, to achieve those purposes, he is using as his instruments the church of God, his blood-bought people, And he's using them and nothing will prevent the kingdom from advancing and growing. Extracts from Acts. 
I'll just close with a few comments to remind you of what we've been studying in recent weeks. The key verse is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. The commission to the 12th immediately before Christ's ascension. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. As we've reached the end of chapter 12, we see how those words of Jesus have been fulfilled. Because the message has been proclaimed in the city of Jerusalem, in Judea and in Samaria, and now it's reaching out to the uttermost part of the earth, the extent of the Roman Empire in those days. We've read of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that tremendous event that kick-started the life of the early church, which marked the birth of the early Christian church when God came with power, which was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the prophecy of Joel, at least in other places, and also was the fulfillment of Christ's promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've noticed that in the early days of the church there was wonderful blessing. People were being saved. People were coming to Christ and to faith. We noticed there was growing opposition and persecution to the work of the kingdom in those days. We noticed that terrible judgment that was poured out upon Ananias and Sapphira because they kept back part of their monies which they promised to drop into the offertory box, as it were. We've read of how the first deacons were appointed, men of faith and of the spirit. We've read of the Apostle Paul and his dramatic conversion to faith. We read of Stephen and his great address and also the martyrdom of Stephen. We read of Cornelius and Peter, as I mentioned earlier, and how now the Jews and the Greeks are welcomed into the Christian family. We've been thinking in these chapters of the leading character, which is the Apostle Peter. And now we read at the end of verse 17, and Peter departed and went into another place. At this moment, Peter just leaves the scene. He's been so key. The Lord has used him greatly. He's been a blessing to so many people. And now he just moves out of the scene, as it were, and he makes way for Paul and for Paul's co-laborers. At chapter 13, we then see that first missionary journey and the work extending even more into the uttermost parts of the earth. And finally, let's go away by thinking upon the distinct and the dominant themes in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And they are prayer, the resurrection of Christ, and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Now let's bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your book, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for each book which comprises your word. We thank you more recently for the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
for all the lessons that we may have learnt. We think of the principles of the encouragements to our faith. We thank you, Lord, for the life of the early Christian church, which was really a pattern church for all the Lord's people to follow and to adopt in their church life. Even this morning, that emphasis upon corporate and individual prayer as a means of grace. And in our days, Lord, and in our nation and in this city, how we cry out to you, Lord, for revival power. How we pray that you would have mercy upon a people that stand under your wrath, under your judgment. But you would have mercy, Lord, and pity and compassion. And that you would yet work amongst people, Lord, who are currently in darkness and unbelief. And you would demonstrate yet again your mighty power to save to the uttermost. This would be our prayer this Lord's Day. For we ask it in the name of our risen, ascended, and glorified Christ. Amen.